Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the Jayberg Wilk Learning Series. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. So what we're calling this tech study tonight is there's a riot going on political violence in Torah law and lore. There's a riot going on is, of course, the title of uh, an album by um, um, Sly and the Family Stone, referred to by some as the first funk album. That's really a separate point. But I thought that it, um, it captures something interesting to think about, that often when there are eruptions of political or politicized violence, there's a lot of expressions of concern from moderates, from people in the community about political violence. And part of the difficult political challenge is to understand those eruptions of political violence in the context of an ongoing state of political violence that is, in a, that is allowed to be more normalized when it comes from institutions of power. So the question of like, how to deal with riots when there have been riots going on from those who don't have to riot. Um, I, uh, it's something I've been thinking a lot about the last five years, um, especially in the context of responses to police violence. Um, and I'm interested in actually taking a step back and seeing what the Torah has to share. So what we're going to do tonight is look at um, at least one, hopefully two stories, the Torah's main two stories of what I would call political violence, one more obviously than the other, and see some, um, some perhaps surprising, perhaps not, uh, reverberations that they have in Jewish legal and philosophical literature. Um, so let's take a, a look. Our first story, we're looking at Brishi, Genesis chapter 34. To set the stage for this text, um, Yaakov and his big family have just returned to the land of Canaan in the previous chapter. You may recall Yaakov, as a young man, uh, swindled his twin brother Esav, you saw, out of, um, out of the firstborn blessing from their blind father. And, um, and Esav was incensed, and uh, Yaakov and his mother, Rivka, thought that Esav might kill him. So Rivka told Yaakov, why don't you go flee to Padan Aram and stay with my brother Lavan for a little while till things calm down. Well, he stayed there 20 years. During that time, he married two sisters, Leah and Rachel, and had a bunch of children with them, had children with their concubines, built a big family, um, got economically swindled by his, his uncle, Lavan, but came out on top with a lot of wealth. 
on its way back to Canaan, had a big high noon rendezvous with Esav. It worked out okay. Nobody got hurt. They hugged, they kissed, they parted ways again. And Yaakov just settled back near the area of Shechem. That's what we found out in the verses right before chapter 34 begins. So that's the background. Yaakov, though he's a native of Canaan, is a newcomer to this area. And all of his children and his wives are brand new to this area. They've all lived in Padan Aram their entire lives. And now they're going back toward Yaakov's homeland. But 20 years later, they're brand new in the area of Shechem. That's background for this. So if you're wondering well, what happened right before this, now you know what happened right before this. They just settled in the land. So let's get some characters clear before we read this story of intrigue. Um, so Yaakov has two wives, Leah and Rachel, and their concubines are Zilpah and Bilhah. And during those 20 years, they had a bunch of children, 12 sons and one daughter are named. And the main characters we need to know about are that Leah, so Leah has six sons of her own and one daughter. So those are the seven full siblings of each other. And that in order, that is Reuven, Shimon, Levi, Yehuda, and then two more later who aren't going to feature in the story too, they're Yisachar and Zvulun, and then Dina is their full sister. Not all of them will come in by name into the story, but some of them will. And it's important to know those relationships of full siblinghood. Um, so that's all. We've now set the scene. We're going to go in and slowly and intentionally, dramatically read this chapter. Does anybody have any questions before we jump in about characters or setting or context or topic or anything else? So um, would somebody like to volunteer to read the first few verses here in Breshit, Genesis chapter 34? Now Dina, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Yaakov, went out to see the girls of the land. Shrem, son of Hamor the Hittite, chief of the land, saw her and took her and laid her, raped her, being strongly drawn to Dina, daughter of Yaakov, and in love with the maiden, he spoke to the maiden tenderly. So Shrem said to his father, Hamor, get me this girl as a wife. Okay, let's pause for a second and take in what we've just seen. First of all, any clarifying questions? What have we seen here so far? Somebody want to like recap in your own words what we've seen so far? Well, I can tell you my reaction to yep. uh, the later raptor. Mm -hmm. It is so, it, it, it's treated with a sense of ordinariness and this is the way things are and casualness that shocks me. I, I've never read this sentence mm -hmm. before and it, it's, a, it, it's more than a little bit disturbing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're gonna see how the later characters interact with this story too, but I think that the tone of this chapter is gonna be an important issue. That's actually the tone is a character itself, in a sense. So I'm really glad you, you flagged that. I want to mention... Yeah, I have a yeah, go for it. What's the Hebrew word for rape? So that's exactly what I was going to talk about. So I want to flag that. That's actually... It's very hard to translate because there is a dispute among scholars and about, among translators as to the meaning of the word, whether it refers to what we would call rape or not. The word is vaye'aneha, 
the root inui, ayin nun yud as a root, means abuse or afflict. I'll tell you some of the other ways it shows up in the Torah. One way it shows up, an Yom Kippur, the one mitzvah, of the, the main mitzvah of the day is v'initem et nafshotechem, afflict yourselves or abuse yourselves. So there the sages interpret that to mean deprivation of bodily pleasures such as food and water and sex and bathing. Um, there are other places where uh, just a, a chapter or two ago when Lavan and Yaakov, Lavan is Yaakov's uncle, when they have reached their detente, Lavan is very upset that Yaakov fled and with, he wasn't able to shake him down for more wealth. Um, but reach a, they reach a certain detente and they build a monument and they make a, they make a treaty. And Lavan makes him take an oath not to, again, inui, that same word, my daughters, nor to take additional wives on them. So the question there, does it mean spousal abuse or does it mean denial of sexual relations? There's some question among um, the traditional and modern commentaries around that. It also is used uh, in reference to Egyptian slavery, like the Egyptian taskmasters inuying the, uh, the Israelites. So what is common throughout all of its uses in the Torah, as understood by um, by traditional and modern commentaries is that the word has to do with um, unjust control over somebody else's body. Sometimes it seems to mean deprivation of sexual freedom. Sometimes it means um, imposition of unwanted sex. Sometimes um, it means just imposing a consequence of like a sexual status. Sometimes it's not necessarily sexual, um, and it might have to. It might refer to um, to other kinds of uh, other kinds of bodily abuse. Um, for example, for example, when Hagar, when Sarah um, oppresses Hagar, she inuies her. It's the same word, and the angel tells her to go back and subject herself to Sarah's. Now, does that mean Sarah was beating her? Or does that mean she was taunting her or tormenting her? Does that mean she was sexually abusing her? Does that mean Sarah was uh, instituting control over when Hagar could get sexual access to Yaakov? Unclear, but it's somewhere in there. So some commentaries and translators would prefer to translate it as defiled her. Um, I avoided that word because... The word time, which we're going to see later on, is usually translated that, and this is a different word. Um, could have just left it as like afflicted her or something like that. This is your translation. This is my translation, but I'm not the only one who renders it as raped. There are some translations who render it that way and some who do not. So for caution, a more conservative reading might be to say, he saw her, took her, laid her, and afflicted her. And then you'd be one, we were left wondering, sort of, what do we mean by afflicted? Yeah. Yeah, but it seems contradictory because, mm -hmm. you know, two lines later, yeah. he says he spoke to her tenderly. And so it seems like a contradiction there, rape and... and so that's actually one tenderly. of the things that animates this translation, is that there is an explicit story later in the Tanakh, in the book of Shmuel, where Amnon, um, there it is pretty clear that it's a rape, rapes his half-sister Tamar and then becomes obsessed with her and wants to normalize the relationship. 
that is something that we see. I mean, we see that a lot in a lot of cases of sexual abuse. There's a um, there's an eroticization of violence and control, and also an imposition of of a framework of violence on the erotic. So it's not, I don't, I'm not sure that that's a counter evidence that it was what we would call rape, but it, and it's also unclear, does that, you know, is he talking about now, you know, he's, we just found out he's like the governor's son. He's son of Hamor, the chief of the land. You know, is, the, is what's being thematized here. He sees what he wants. He has a like want it and take it kind of attitude. He goes and he's never been taught about consent. He's never been taught about like fair and equal relationships. He goes and, and has his way with her and confuses arousal or his, can only understand his own arousal as love and wanting to continue to control. So I, it's, it's very hard to know. It's a, it's a terse text. So these well, but, are good. That, that was normal then of men controlling the women. Well, yes and no. Yes and no. I mean, on the one hand, patriarchy certainly um, was considered normal, and yet this incident seems to be highlighted as unusual and problematic in ways we're going to see. What's exactly problematic is a question. But we haven't seen other characters, though we've seen models of patriarchy consistently throughout, we haven't seen, you know, a, Yaakov didn't go and like find, he, he loved Rachel, so he went and had sex with her. He expressed his love and he asked her father for his hand, her hand, etc. So, like, we haven't seen this as a, this is a new thing that we're seeing here. Yeah. Okay, so again, going back to the Bible, it was written maybe 3,500 years ago. So, the Bible, you know, puts itself out as a model of how to live, which is really very Maybe, good. maybe. Uh, okay. Not clear. Yeah, okay. But 3,500 years ago, 500 years ago, uh, women were really almost like property and and you can sort of see that even today in some societies, like, like really Mexico. Uh, so a woman is protected by the household and is, and is really not supposed to venture outside without uh, some male relative accompanying her. So if a woman sort of ventures outside, she's by herself, she's, she's fair game, especially to a culture that does not uh, adhere to the Torah, which is... Well, there wasn't such thing as the Torah yet. So let's oh, okay, remember, yeah, okay. remember, where this is okay, yeah, in the first book of the Torah, yeah. and this is so, just Abraham's yeah. grandchildren. So yeah, we're, yeah. Okay, this so is we're all not, very new. So, they, we're not, we're not so I also, uh, let's, let's try to uh, be, uh, no, right, right, let's right. be a little more cautious about anachronism, and let's also be a little more cautious about sweeping generalizations about cultures and so on. I think it's fair to say the entire landscape of the Torah is patriarchal, oh, yeah. and yet n patriarchal contexts do not mean that anything that a non-patriarchal context it would be considered um, inappropriate was the norm. This is being thematized. Again, this is an unusual situation. We don't see this being enacted elsewhere. We didn't see it in any previous generation, 
and it's treated as a scandal in what's about to come. So let's actually, let's try to pause. I'm glad we did flag that word as a questionable word, and it's going to be an important question as to what is the nature of what happened, what do the various characters know. So, so far, you know, that Dina went out to see some girls. You know, she's in a family of 12 brothers and no other sisters to our knowledge. New land, she wants to go meet some girls. Shem, the governor's son, sees her and takes her and has sex with her, but it is the, the, the language for that is treating her as an object. There are times where the Torah, despite all being patriarchal, says lishkav uh, im, to lie with, and this here it says lishkav et, to, to lay her. She's not described as an agent on her own. She's the, um, the, the direct object of the laying. And in the book of Deuteronomy, when we see laws about um, punishable sex that are definitely like what we call rape and that the woman um, assumed not to have been uh, consenting, that is the, phrase, the phrasing that's used, lishkav et. So whatever the word vayaneha is, the narrator wants us to think that like that Shem, the governor's son, went and bedded her and afflicted her, whatever that's going to mean. So that's what we've seen so far. And now Shem um, is now drawn to her and he wants to legitimate it. So he tells his father, get me this girl as a wife. Go legitimate it. All right, somebody else want to pick up the reading from there at verse 5? New reader. Yeah. Yaakov heard that he had defiled his daughter Dina, but since his sons were in the field with his cattle, Yaakov kept silent until they came. Then Shechem's father, Hamor, came out to Yaakov to speak to him. Meanwhile, Yaakov's sons came in from the field when they heard, and the men were distressed and very angry because he had committed an outrage in Israel by lying with Yaakov's daughter, a thing not to be done. Okay, so can we pause again for a second? Try to, again, the Torah text is very terse here. Try to tell a story. This is speculative, but it's what we have to do when we read literature. How did they hear? Yaakov heard about what happened. And then his sons eventually hear. Yaakov's sons came in from the field when they heard. What do you tell a story? And again, there's no, this isn't right or wrong. This isn't based on some, oh, I, you know, don't think I, you can't respond because you don't know Torah well enough. There isn't, there isn't other information here. Well, Try no, to tell a story. There's no text messaging, so. How did, how did this word get around? So, yeah, yeah, so try to speculate a little bit. What, anybody, what do you think? Well, it says Hamor came out to Yaakov to speak to him. No, so, but Yaakov already knew. Yaakov's already heard before then. But Yaakov held, holds his tongue. He wants to wait until his, his sons are there. But he's heard already. And then, after Hamor comes to speak to Yaakov, or meanwhile, around the same time, Yaakov's sons hear and they come in from the fields. You get the sense that like word is spreading. So just like based on what you understand about the world, what do you think? What, what do we learn from that? If you're gonna, if you were, um, if you were screenwriters and you, this is a script and you now have to stage this or film it, how how would you depict this this hearing? How would you show Yaakov hearing and then eventually the sons hearing? 
Yaakov hearing about the defilement of his daughter. Yeah, verse 5. Well, Yaakov why, heard. Why, uh, I mean, why does it have to be in sentences and words? Maybe she's despondent. She's acting differently than she usually does. So you think she's back at home now? Yeah. How'd she get there? Obviously, Amtrak. <laughs> so you think so un unstated in here. Well, this is something we're going to like question as we move on in the narrative. Unstated is that after this rape, she's come home. And now, Hamor, so when, when Shem says to his father, get me her as a wife, it's because she's already back home and want to like go fetch her. Mm -hmm. Okay? We'll see. We'll see. I want to like not assume that, but I'm glad you're putting that on the table. So maybe Yaakov hears because he's seeing Dina act strangely and ask some questions. Some other suggestions? Well, what I'm speculating, what I'm, uh, where it says in verse 5, Yaakov heard that uh, he had defiled his daughter, Dina. It almost seems to me like Dina came home and told Mother Leah, mm -hmm. and Leah then okay. said to Yaakov, because that would be kind of the okay. consistent way this kind okay. of story would, would, would travel, would be the daughter coming home and not maybe going to her father, but likely going to her mother. Okay. And then how are the sons hearing then, out in the field? You know, that kind of how are her brothers hearing out in the field? Okay, so what you say is normally what happens, and it probably happened in this case too, except it seems that if uh, Leah would have come right to, to Yaakov and told him, it would have said something to that effect. So Leah maybe told one of her woman friends, and mm -hmm. somehow it spread, and got back to Yaakov and somehow got to the, to the boys in the field. I want to oh. throw out another... Yeah, go ahead. They heard when they came in from the fields. No, 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 no. Yes, Yaakov's son came no. in from the field when they heard. Oh, okay. Sounds like they hear and that they leave work early because it's an emergency. Okay. You know. Yeah, and, and number seven it says when they heard. I'm not sure what they Yeah, B'nai Yaakov ba'um mina sadek They came, when it says it like, when they as soon as they heard, they like dropped, they like, they, they got a call at the office, oh, I got to go. You know, cover for me, I got like an emergency. This makes me think of the whole Prince Andrew scandal in Epstein. <laughs> no, that's a different one. Yeah, because that's these, are, different. these are the upper echelons of society. Yeah. 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 No, that, that is an important... You know, if this happened, you know, some one of Yaakov's, you know, is... milkmaids or whatever, you know, it wouldn't be such a big deal. Well, hold on one second. I think the comparison isn't necessarily on the Yaakov side. It's more on the Shechem side. Shechem is the governor's son. The Yaakov's family are newcomers to the region. They're rich, but they're just one family. They're not, they're not real inhabitants in the land. They're like brand new. So like, but on the other hand, the rapist or is or whatever you want to call him is the governor's son. So I. It says committed an outrage in in Israel. It doesn't say committed an outrage in Canaan. Well, Israel isn't the name of a place until 1948. Israel is the name okay, of so what is it Jacob's family. No, well, okay, Israel also Israel means that's not a place. That's oh, in their oh, family. Oh, yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah, that Yaakov is. That's just yeah, Israel, Jacob, yeah, Jacob's yeah, name yeah. is Israel, right? right. So, so I mean, really kind of blew it because whether it was Yaakov or really any family that had one daughter and twelve sons, he was in trouble. Say so like, what you mean. 
regardless of how powerful Yaakov and, and that whole family that came in, uh, I mean, he, he took advantage of the wrong only daughter. Uh, yeah, say what you mean. Who took, no pronouns. Say who you mean. To, who's in trouble from what and who Shrem. took advantage of whom? Shrem. Shrem. Uh, raped a girl who has 12 brothers. Yeah. Uh, regardless of what family, you know, those 12 brothers would be very revenge. Well, ma yeah, may maybe. Revenge. Maybe, on the other hand, he's the governor's son, and it's their home. He's got a whole town. Yeah. They're this newcomer family. So we'll see whether the well. So we're about to do a power analysis about this negotiation. Um, I want to throw out another suggestion. I think the suggestions you've thrown out for how they've heard are plausible. I want to throw out another plausible suggestion. Word is out, like they hear because in the town of in this town, word is out. The governor's kid just uh, maybe he's boasting, or maybe other people saw it. Maybe it was in public. But this is a, pub, a matter of public knowledge. Who's going to control the narrative, the news cycle, when somebody powerful committed a crime, and when the, when the criminal controls the news cycle, what is what new dangers are in store for the victim and for the victim's family? I'm going to think about like, you know. I think we should be thinking about this. Like, why don't women usually come forward when they're uh, sexually assaulted or raped by powerful men? Because for very good reason, they know that likely, not only will it not be effective, the powerful man will be entrenched and will have enough support to continue getting away with it, but her life will be ruined and the whole thing will be blamed on her. That, you know, Harvey Weinstein did what he did for years. Bill Cosby did what he did for years. R. Kelly did what he did for years. Even when he was indicted in a criminal trial, he continued making albums flaunting this behavior. And most, for the most part, didn't care. And even family members and friends of girls who were victimized by him blamed the girls for it. Because it happened in my neighborhood. He actually went to my high school. I know people. Which two? R. Kelly. Um, uh, I know people who were like pretty close to the situation, a, a high school classmate of mine who wasn't herself targeted, but knew people who were and knew men and women, adults in their lives who, who slut-shamed their own daughters and nieces for complaining about what R. Kelly had done, you're trying to ruin this powerful man, he's so proud. So that's what really happens. You know, the Kavanaugh hearings, etc. So who controls the news here is going to be an important story. This is the governor's son. Thinking about power here is going to be very relevant, as it always is when we talk about violence. Okay, so we're now up to verse 8. So now Yaakov is ready to stop holding his tongue. He held his tongue before because his sons weren't there. He didn't feel ready to deal with it until they were there. Sons are very distressed. A thing not to be done happened. And so now, Hamor is there on Yaakov's family's territory, but like really on the outskirts of Shechem there. Hamor is still the governor. He's come to meet them, to talk to them, to try to legitimate this mm. whole thing that happened. Okay, so verse 8. Does a new reader want to pick up 
where we left off. All right. Go for it. And do you say Hamor or Hamor? Hamor. Hamor spoke with them saying, My son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him in marriage. Intermarry with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You will dwell among us and the land will be open before you. Settle, move about, and acquire holdings in it. Then Shechem said to her father and brothers, Do me this favor and I will pay whatever you tell me. Ask of me a bride price ever so high, as well as gifts, and I will pay what you tell me. Only give me the maid for a wife. Should I stop? It sounds like I should. Yeah, all right, so pause there for a second. So Hamor and Shechem are really trying to make this happen. They seem to be playing on different, they seem to be reading the power map a little bit differently. The father, the governor, is saying like, well, let's you, why don't you use this as an opportunity to assimilate into us. Well, let's make this mutually beneficial. Let's treat this, as he's speaking to them, almost as though it's like they're a, another nation or something. And let's, uh, as the powerful party always has the advantage of speaking this way, let's do a, a union and it'll be mutually beneficial and it'll be like, you know, when the prince of one nation or tribe marries the princess of another and it'll be mutually beneficial. Now, of course, Easy for him to say that. It's his territory. He's the governor. It's his turf. You know, it's not exactly like, uh, you know, a, uh, in America today, uh, a, a, a Hindu person and a Jewish person meet and they fall in love and they decide to make a uh, syncretistic, you know, practice of their different faith traditions. And they're both minorities in the larger culture, but also minorities who can not that kind of assimilation, like the power dynamic is pretty clear, and he's saying like, let's do this the right way, you know, with always the implication that if you say no, you could do it the wrong way, but let's do it the right way, and you know, we'll all be one people, which means you guys get swallowed into us. Shem says something different, like I'll give you lots of money, he's the rich kid, he's just used to you know, well, I'll give you all the money you want. That's the one thing that Yaakov's family, like, isn't, they have lots of money. The main thing we know about them is that they're loaded after the previous chapter. Um, doesn't seem to be what's motivating them. What they're distressed about isn't that there's going to be financial loss here. What they're distressed about is about the abuse or the defilement um, so, and potentially about where... Dina is. Again, Dina hasn't been mentioned. It's not clear. Mm -hmm. And I want to suggest that Dina's absence here is not just um, is not just regular, everyday androcentrism and uh, invisibilizing of women characters, though that is a theme, that is a, uh, a phenomenon in the Tanakh. But in other um, situate like when when Avram's servant went to go woo Rivka to come marry Yitzchak, he doesn't just talk to Bituel and Lavan. Rivka is involved in the negotiations, and they say, "Do you want to go?" And she says, "Yes." And they say, "Well, how about you stay another ten days and then go?" And she says, "No, I want to go right now." So they say, "Well, what can you do? We'll send you a blessing, send you anywhere." So like the. The Torah does center women as having agency when it wants to. Here, I want us to think, to notice, and think about Dina's absence from the story. 
All right, let's well, let's. I, I find two super hard. One is that he says intermarrying with us divorce your daughters. You know, there is only yeah, daughter. real question. Yeah, and and then um, and then then she's called give the maiden. She's no longer a maiden if she's been raped. Well, that not, is not necessarily the case. I mean, conventions of language change over time. It might just mean a young girl. So, um, I would, again, I would be very cautious about assuming Victorian language assumptions about other cultures. Be that as it may, let's move on and sort of pick up the pace a little bit. Um, so we're now up to verse 13. <laughs> Yaakov's sons answered Shechem and his father Hamor, speaking deceitfully, because he had defiled their sister Dina, and said to them, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to a man who is uncircumcised, for that is a disgrace among us. Only on this condition will we agree with you, that you will become like us if every male among you is circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, Take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell among you and become as one kindred. But if you will not listen to us and become circumcised, we will take our girl and go. All right, now pause there for a second. What do you think Yaakov's sons are doing? What's their intention with this offer? Are they hoping that Shem and Chamor will agree or will not agree? What's their purpose? You think they want them no. to agree? Well, let her say her piece first, and then you'll counter it. So explain it. I mean, if they want Dina so badly, they'll do anything to have her. So if they want, they're hoping Shechem and Chamor will be like, okay, great, we'll all circumcise ourselves and we'll legitimate this marriage in that case. And then we'll be able to, um, you can take our women, you know, we'll, it's like a whole intermarriage thing. So they want, that to, they want that to happen, they just want it to happen. So the barrier for Yaakov's sons is a, is a religious barrier. They'd be like, you know, we would love this intermarriage thing, we'd love to legitimate Shechem and, and Dina's union. It's just that God commanded our grandfather with this thing and we all have to, that's a tribal thing. Okay, so that, no. that, is, that is one reading. We have a different reading over here. Moshe. Moshe, yeah, what's your... Well, okay, let's see if we can so, work it out. This is, yeah, I was trying to figure out Hebrew. Uh, okay, so it says, uh, they answered Shrem and his father speaking deceitfully. Yeah, what was the deceit? Okay, so, so that's the question. It's always like, that's why I'm not good at chess. So, so how far are they thinking ahead? Yeah. That's the question. So either they're not thinking ahead very far and they're just saying this, so the, because circumcision is, is pretty tough if you're already... Yeah. If, if you're already... A, a, a grown-up person, so either they're just thinking, well, we, we, we raised the bar so high that they're not, not really going to go for this, but we've justified it, so maybe we can still remain peaceful. peaceful so, in other words, so, your, so your reading is that they are, they're bluffing, yeah. and they don't have the power right now, so they're, they're trying to come up with what is a way in which we can get Shechem and Hamor off our backs and rescue Dina, we're going to pretend, because they have the power here, like this is really appealing, 
but we're going to have a condition which has plausible, which has plausibility to it because we can all pull down our pants and show you that we're all circumcised. It's a thing with us. Um, so with this plausibility, but with the assumption that there's no way that they're going to agree. And they, they set the bar so high. They don't just say, but Shem has to circumcise himself. It's that all the men in the entire town have to circumcise themselves. And so maybe the assumption is they're going to be like, no way. And then we'll be like, oh, that's too bad. It was a really nice suggestion, but too bad it can't work out. Let's go our separate ways. Dino, let's run. Or, or, or they're figuring out that they'll be incapacitated. Well, that's, well, well, that, that's, what, was, what, that's what I was trying to say. How far ahead are they thinking? And, and we don't know. Yeah. Unless it's going to explode to us later. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So let's see. Looking far enough ahead to remember Abraham on right. his third day. Right. So they already knew. So that, yeah. yeah. They know circumcision's painful. Yeah. No, but are they thinking far enough ahead that they're yeah. going to go in the middle of the night and kill everybody? We'll see what, we'll see what happens. But yeah, I, I want to suggest. No, yeah, I want to suggest. I want to suggest again. This is it's speculative. I want to suggest that they don't expect this to be agreed upon. That we should read that as a shocking demand, a, like a very high bar. Every man in the town is going to have to go along with this. Remember, the sons are incensed about the sexual encounter that happened. They think it's a thing that should not happen. It is like a total outrage. They had to leave work. It's a little bit of a quick transition to go from that outrage and horror to let's find a deal. So like their ho the horror that this happened to like, oh, but they're offering us a lot of money. So, uh, but we're religious. Let's just see if we can work it out. It's a little bit of a strange transition. Now, Shechem and Hamor, remember, didn't see them rushing in from the field outraged. That, like, but they're able to get their wits together by the time they come to the negotiating table. But maybe it seems more likely, and the, I think the narrator is cueing us to this by giving us an omniscient narrator moment of the brother spoke deceitfully, meaning I think the deceit is, all right, let's come up with a plan. How are we going to, we're, we're in big trouble here. Because, and I mean, how big trouble depends on where Leah is right now. It's really big trouble if Leah is still in Shechem's house. Dina. Sorry, if Dina is still in Shechem's house, thank you. Then it's, they're in really big trouble. If she's back with, uh, here in the community, then it's less big trouble. But there's still big trouble because if the governor wants to make our lives miserable, the governor can do that. And so they have they have problems right now. So maybe there's a, how can we de-escalate this in a way that will get them to agree that it's best not to go ahead with this union, and then they won't go ahead and stigmatize and slut shame Dina and terrorize the whole family, and they'll just go their separate ways. So let's go on and see what let me, happens. Let me ask you something. Yeah. Um, is it important for, the, for our understanding of this story that Hamor and Shechem came to the brothers instead of asking the family to come to them and make it that's a That's a good question. So play with it. What do you think is significant about that? I, I think it shows the genuineness of Hamor and Shechem to make, make peace and make this deal happen. Can, can you agree that they could simultaneously be genuine about wanting it to happen 
and also have a power advantage over Yaakov and his family that exists irrespective of their desires. Their desire, I'm not saying that they're, that they're faking it, that they don't actually want to legitimate it. They do want to legitimate it, but they might have a lot to gain and they might hold implied violence over Yaakov and his family if they don't agree because he's the governor and because... Just because he's governor, there's an implication of, of possible violence if, if they don't agree. Definitely. Definitely. That's why sexual harassment, that's why sexual encounter between a superior and a subordinate is always, mm-hmm. is always verboten. But in, in contemporary times, would Epstein say, let me go to the house of the mother of the... So I don't know. That's a good question. So what is the interest? So mapping out the the power map and seeing what is the interest of Shem and Hamor and reading past. On the one hand, it might just be like, oh my gosh, he really has a crush on her. He really mm-hmm. likes her. But he did bed her first. Mm-hmm. And again, even if we, even if it's a, the word, the precise meaning of Vianneha is a little bit slippery, he did vaishkav ota. He didn't vaishkav ima. He didn't go to bed with her. He bedded her. And so given that that happened already, there's a power situation going on. And she was a singular, a, a, a new immigrant to the region, and he's the governor's son who can just take what he wants. And so there's going to be a desire to, to legitimate this. We can do it the clean way. We could do it the, the not clean yeah, way. But she doesn't object either. We don't no, know. No, no. We There's don't. We don't know. Either right. Way. So either that way. I think is a very interesting case. Either so way. is this, is this the Torah as an androcentric document in a patriarchal androcentric context, yet again invisibilizing the character of the agency of women characters, or is the invisibility of Dina actually? a key literary feature of the story to indicate the problematic of the power map, which is usually what's happening in situations of violence. You don't have all the knowledge. Maybe if it, if it tells us that Dina went out, went into the town, went over there, and that's where Shechem bedded her, and then we see Hamor and Shechem coming back, and we haven't seen Dina, maybe that's important. Dina is still there. Maybe she's back in the house still. And now Hamor and Shechem come to this negotiation and say, you know, my, my boy really likes your girl who's back in my house right now. We, we, we'd really like to do this the right way and make it financially beneficial for you. Isn't there something in the Talmud about whether the woman screams or not if she's getting raped? Yeah, chapter 25 of Devarim. Yeah. yeah, that's what I referred to with Vaishkav Ed versus Vaishkav Im. But that's not in the Talmud, that's in the book of Dvarim. But the book of Dvarim is not this passage. And there are lots of places where biblical characters act in explicit violation of of things that happen in the Dvarim laws. But also, this isn't biblical, this is not Israelites. So what happens when a the governor's son of a foreign nation beds somebody from our community and and we, the people in the community, 
Maybe part of this is like a game theory thing. Was Dina actually running away from home and found a boyfriend and is really excited about it? I think so. Or, or was Dina kidnapped by her assaulter, who happens to be the governor's son, and now we, the rest of the family, have to figure out how we respond to this predicament. So it's a real problem. The violence has begun, and we don't have the upper hand, we as the community, trying to figure out, is Dina a captive who needs our intervention? Or is Dina a runaway? So the narrator seems to think more like the former, although it's unclear where she is. And the not asking her her opinion actually is striking because the most recent previous stories of mating all heavily involved the women giving their opinion of the story. Rivka was, there's real attention to Rivka's agency in deciding whether she wants to go. Rachel and Leah dressing up, being, entering the wedding canopy, Rachel complaining. Like these are very actualized characters about their sexual lives and their marital lives. So here, the, the, the invisibility of Dina seems to be a strong literary trope, maybe about her absence. That itself is part of the, the question for interpretation of the violence. So let's move on and see what happens. Um, so, uh, so we've just, uh, the, the, the sons have just come up with this deceitful suggestion. How about you all, every male in your town, circumcise yourselves, and then we'll take our girl and go. We'll take our girl and go. Where does that imply she is? Okay, verse 18. I'll read a little bit. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. And the youth lost no time in doing the thing, for he wanted Yaakov's daughter. Now he was the most respected in his father's house. Favorite child, pretty boy. So Hamor and his son Shechem went to the public place of their town and spoke to their fellow townsmen, saying, These people are our friends. Let them settle in the land and move about in it, for the land is large enough for them. We'll take their daughters to ourselves as wives and give our daughters to them. But only on this condition will the men agree with us to dwell among us and be as one kindred, that all our males become circumcised as they are circumcised. Their cattle and substance and all their beasts will be ours if we only agree to their terms so that they will settle among us. Now, the person who has the most to gain from this, of course, is Hamor to gain from all the people agreeing because Hamor might have a political problem on his hands if it's not legitimized and he's going to have to spend some political capital slut-shaming Dina and then like rendering her into a, uh, you know, a, a, uh, a, a foreign temptress whore who came in, all the things that happened. It'll be easy for him to do it, but it'll cost some political capital. It's much better for him if everybody agrees. To, what's that? That Dina is not complicit. Correct, correct. We don't, and again, that's part of the, the crisis for the brothers and the rest of the family trying to figure out what's going on. So the narrator seems to think she wasn't complicit. Now, the narrator, of course, the narrator is probably coming from the family, you know, <laughs> but maybe the narrator isn't interested in, like, a runaway Hebrew daughter who prefers to live with the Chivites. So it's, there's no way we can, especially in a mythic story, there's no way we can know for sure because there's no such thing as for sure. But the narrator has used this language as vayishkav et, bedded her, vayaneha, and has silenced her throughout the passage. So if it was important stylistically for the narrator that 
the crisis was actually a wayward child who doesn't want to be part of the people anymore, that would be an important thing to be part of the narrative. Okay, so now, verse 24. Yeah, go ahead. No, just my mother was the only daughter. There were three sons, mm -hmm. other, other siblings. And they hated my father for many years. And I think, in, you know, when you have one daughter, no matter how many male uh, siblings there are, if there aren't other daughters, there's going to be this thing of having to protect her. So that could be, and especially in a pre-modern, I mean, their concern might not be exactly our concern. It might be simultaneously true that she's been victimized, raped, and kidnapped, and that their concern is not mainly about the rape and the kidnap, but mainly about like a, a, a shame, you know, a, a misogynistic kind of framing. Those things might simultaneously be true, and that we have to walk and chew gum at the same time and realize there's a crisis. The only people available to deal with it might not have the best framing of the crisis, and yet they're involved. In fact, that is usually the case in political crises that have violence hovering, is that we don't have heroes around us. We have a buffet of problematic choices. And that seems to be what's thematized in this chapter. Oh, what a sentence. So, <laughs> a buffet of problematic choices. Okay. So, um, so, do, 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 do. May I ask you? Yes. Um, was there a Jewish religion at this time, or was it a no. cultural identification? Neither. Neither. I mean, Jewish so just means descended from the tribe of Judah. Judah's a kid. He's a teenager. He's one of the sons here. They're, 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 these are Abraham's grandsons. This is, a, this so, is just a clan. A it's one family. There's no culture. It's just them. It's only them. The, and, and this is the only family. Who are the other? Israel. Family? Israel is literally Jacob's other name from, from that chapter. I, I understand yeah. that. Who are the other thems in this town? That the Chivites. The Chivites. Just said it at the beginning. The Chivite nation. Shechem, the son of Hamor the Chivite, chief of the land. Chivite nations, one of the indigenous nations in the land. Later on, they become one of the seven nations that the Israelites, much later, are commanded to wipe out of the land. But this one of the indigenous nations in the land. And this is one family of weirdos. Because <laughs> Abraham went and listened to voices when he was 75 years old of a god nobody's ever heard of and went and built altars and stuff. But he was successful and made money. But, you know, and then went and lived in Lav at Lavan's house he, you know, he wasn't worshiping. He had idols and stuff. Rachel stole his idols on the way out. We just found that out two chapters ago. So, you know, th it's just this family. They're real loners here. They, they were the Bedouin of the time. So, not even, they, not they even, not even. Considered. They're one clan with with weird practices and beliefs. All right, so let's let's pick up the pace here. Um, so, verse twenty-four. All who went out of the gate of his town heeded Hamor and his son Shechem and all males. And all those who went out of the gate of the town were circumcised. Uh-oh, our deceitful plan didn't work. They decided to do it. So now what? Now this rape kidnap is going to be legitimated and we're going to be forcibly assimilated into the Chivite nation. Um, on the third day when they were in pain... Shimon and Levi, two of Yaakov's sons, Just two. brothers of Dina. 
So they are sons number two and three of Yaakov's sons. Took each one his sword, came upon the city powerfully, Betach, and killed all the males. Just slaughtered. They went and, went and just slaughtered. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem by sword, seemingly after they've killed all the other men. Then they get to Hamor and Shechem. Took Dina out of Shechem's house. Maybe that's where she's been the whole time. This is the first we're seeing of Dina the whole time. And if they had to pass through all the other men before they get to Hamor and Shechem, it seems like we now retroactively understand part of this crisis was that if Dina's in the house, and the house is in the center of the city, so even if they wanted to try to go on a rescue mission, how are we going to get her like all the way through? There's a lot of people in this town. Everybody seems to know what's happening. And this is the governor's son. So you might wonder, like, why did they have to like slaughter every male? Why don't they just go in and slaughter Hamor and Shem? And then how are they going to get out? So this is a problematic rescue mission. On the one, on the one hand, what a couple of hotheads. It and seems extreme. There's the two of them, they go and massacre. They massacre the entire town. Mm-hmm. Kill all the men. And then kill the actual perpetrators. Yeah. Rescue their sister from the house she was kidnapped in. And That's they leave. That's based on the assumption that she never went back home and never returned yeah. to school. But again, it's, no, that's, I, that's that is correct. That's, that's correct. That's a good assumption. Yeah. But why is it a good assumption? Well, it just makes sense. So, because otherwise, you would have to say, so right after she was raped, she went home. She went home. And then, started and then she went him. back? When did she go well, back? Maybe she was enamored with him. Yeah, but. but you know, victims it, sometimes yeah, but become it, it, attracted it, to So him. there's all these negotiations it, it going around. Hamor and Shem. I mean, then it's, as we would it say, in, as we would say in Hebrew, ikar chaser min hasefer, the essential point is what's lacking from the book then. Then that's just a very yeah. strange literary yeah. construction. Like, what, how did she... You need to create a lot more backstory. I think the simpler reading is that... So that's what she's been the whole time. And now we understand the power map of what was going on when Hamor and Shechem were doing this very, very congenial negotiation. Let's... You seem like nice people. Let's take care of this the, the right way. But meanwhile, Dean is back in their house. So what happens if you say no? What happens if you say, no, you're a you're, you're pretty boy, entitled kid, just raped our relative, and you're holding her as a captive. Get the hell out of here. That's not going to go well for them. Power imbalance. There's no cops to call. If there were, he owns them. He's the governor. So what are their options here? And this is like the, the I think Shimon and Levi are these, these very ambivalent characters. On the one hand, they seem like, God, what a massacre. This is very extreme. Murderers. Seems a little extreme. On the other hand, what other options were really in front of them in the case that Dina was, was kidnapped? So then it gets more macabre. So the sons of Yah then... After Shimon and Levi have done all the killing and done the rescue mission, then the sons of Yaakov, the rest of the brothers, who are not courageous enough to be part of the rescue mission, now they come upon the corpses and they plunder the town, which had defiled their sister. Interesting framing that the town had defiled her, not just Shem, this one person. But 
We're going to come back to that. They seized their flocks and herds and asses and all that was inside the town and outside and all their wealth and all their children and their wives. And now the brothers do the exact same thing that Shem had done, and they're now kidnapping and raping all those in the houses, and they took his captives and booty. Right, it doesn't say explicitly they raped them, but they're taking captives. Yaakov said to Shimon and Levi, not to the brothers who did the ransom, to who did the, the theft, but he says to Shimon and Levi, you've ruined me, making me odious among the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Prezites. I am but few in number, so if they unite against me and attack me, I and my house shall be destroyed. But they answered, should our sister be treated like a whore? Now that's the end of the story. And it ends on this very strangely ambivalent note, and it's un- so they get the last word, but it's a last word that's a question. What happens in their family life after that? We do know that on Yaakov's deathbed, he curses Shimon and Levi as violent hooligans. But it's, I think that this, the ambivalence is really thematized here in terms of the violence. How do we make sense of what Shimon and Levi did? I want to return to that that verse that the brothers, or the, the really the, the omniscient narrator, says in verse 27, the sons of Yaakov came upon the corpses and plundered the town which had defiled their sister. So here's the question. Who killed Eric Garner? So Officer Pantaleo, the individual, saying as and you'd say, Shrem raped and kidnapped Dina, Officer Pantaleo. But at least all of his associates that stood there and watched were complicit as well. Right? I mean, okay, it was, so. It wasn't just one cop and one big Eric Garner. I mean, yeah, if they wanted to group. stop it, yes. there were enough of them. They had arms, and there were a bunch of them. And what about, what about after the death and like further deaths that came after. Officer Pantaleo has never been charged with any crime. Everybody saw it, the crime happen. The coroner called it a homicide. The police department acknowledged that it was against departmental regulations. Everybody saw it, everybody knows it. And the, the attorney general opted not to press charges, criminal charges for homicide or manslaughter. So, so, the cops became kind of like so and, and on and on and on. And of course, it's not just Eric Garner. I mean, it's, yes. I mean, it's hundreds and hundreds of people. It's going back. I mean, we just last week had the 50th anniversary of when the Chicago police assassinated, there's really no other word for it, assassinated Fred Hampton and Mark Clark while they slept. Went in, guns blazing, 21-year-old charismatic leader, gunned him down in his sleep in his, in his home. His eight-and-a-half-month-pregnant girlfriend barely survived because she was able to crawl away while the shooting was happening. But, and they, it was very clear. They, I mean, they ended up having, losing a civil rights suit, settling, and having to pay millions of dollars in a settlement. So the court sort of recognized the culpability of the cops, but nobody ever else was faced any criminal charges. And on and on and on and on and on. Sandra Bland and Freddie Gray and so on. So That's when it's very interesting when the Torah says, you know, the town defiled the sister. I want to return. I, I said it as a flippant thing, but like when the brothers are in this sham of a negotiation, why don't they call the cops and press charges? 
And the answer is, of course, that's a, we all know that that's a ridiculous question. Even if they had a democracy, a so-called democracy in our system, powerful people rarely get prosecuted for crimes, all the more so in a tribal system. What do we expect of violence? And anyone who has any kind of critical feeling, as Shimon and Levy, who, who feels like Yaakov did, that I can't believe you did this odious, horrible thing, what is your alternative? And for this, I want to turn to, on page three, we're not doing everything in the package, don't worry, we're going to, you know, but I, I, I want to introduce a very provocative and um, somewhat surprising text of the Rambam. For background for that, um, if you look in Roman numeral two, text number two here, the Talmud Bavli, Sanhedrin, page 56a. This is a passage where the rabbis opine on what we expect of Gentiles. The, page three. The top of page three. The very, the top of page three. Roman numeral two, Talmud Bavli, Sanhedrin 56a. So the context here, the Talmud obviously has lots and lots and lots and lots and lots to say about what Jews need to do, the 613 meets vote, and they're enumerating them in great detail. What do we actually expect of Gentiles? Not that we have jurisdiction over them, but what do we actually think? This, so this is exactly, so this is the passage that calls them the Noahide law. So our sages taught seven mitzvot were commanded to the descendants of Noah. And by the descendants of Noah, that means, remember, like humanity started over fresh with Noah. Ten generations later, Abraham is one branch who goes off. So descendants of Noah means everyone else who's not Jewish. So what do we expect of human beings? One, civil laws, dinin. Two, blessing the name. That's a euphemism for cursing God's name, blasphemy. Three, idolatry, four, incest, five, bloodshed, murder, six, robbery and kidnapping. There's one word in Hebrew, gazelle, doesn't distinguish between property and persons in terms of uh, robbery. So that's just one word, gazelle. And uh, eating a limb from, tearing a limb from a living animal. In other words, if somebody comes to you and says, um, my people received revelation through a prophet on such and such a mountain, and we have all these laws. We have no reason not to believe them and take them at their word, unless they come and say, and it is part of our religion to practice incest. We don't believe that. We don't buy that. But, and that's why, like, you know, Islam, for example, was not, never considered um, a false religion or an idolatrous religion by anybody in the Jewish tradition. Islam was their... They don't violate the seven Noahide laws. So how, who are we to say what happened on the mountain to Muhammad? We, we don't claim yes or yay or nay. But Christianity got more complicated because there were like disputes among what the Trinity is, whether that's, you know, uh, um, whether that involves idolatry or not. And generally, like there's been different opinions about, about uh, Catholicism versus Protestantism. There's been more complicated natures. But that's why... You know, Islam, which is very, very strict about representations of the deity, even more strict than we are, um, Islam has been very uncontroversial. Like, it's forbidden for a Jew to practice it because a Jew has to practice Judaism. But for other people to practice it, we have no objection. And many other practices. So anyway, that's all we claim about other people. Now, the question is, what is meant by dinim, civil laws? And here the Rambam weighs in. So far, not surprising. The Rambam writes 
a comprehensive 14-volume code of law, a magisterial work of its time in the late 12th century, um, taking all the scattered um, uh, laws of the Talmud and making order of them, topically organizing them, removing all the give and take and argumentation and multiple opinions and just making order of them. And indeed, in the laws of kings, Hilchot Melachim, chapter 9, he deals with the seven Noahide laws, adjudicates them too. So here in law 14, he comes into defining the civil law. What does it mean? In what way are people commanded with regard to civil law? Dinim. His answer, this is drawing from the Talmud, they're obligated to seat judges and magistrates in each and every municipality to adjudicate those six mitzvot and to warn the people. And that's ordinarily where he would end the law. In the Rambam style, that's where it would end. He's now defined what the law is. Dinim doesn't mean all the lists of all the civil laws as we know them. It means they have to have a functioning justice system and they, they have to operate it. What the Two witnesses, three witnesses, one witness, I don't know. Sign on the back of a document or on the front of the, I don't know. There are lots of ways you could like adjudicate the, the, the specifics of civil laws. Um, is theft punished with like just remuneration or double remuneration? There are, all, there are a million different ways out there. They have to have a justice system. They have to be consistent. They have to follow it. They have to have a court system that, that operates. He then adds, a descendant of Noah who violates one of these seven mitzvot must be killed by the sword. That's, he's now finished the seven mitzvot, and he's like, all of them are, by the way, capital crimes. And now, in a very uncharacteristic way, the Rambam, without any source, without any Talmudic precedent, he's not reframing anything, he just opines and adds something, a bit of biblical parshanut, biblical commentary, which is very unusual for him. He says, and for this reason, all of the people of Shechem, meaning of the town, were liable for the death penalty. For after all, Shechem kidnapped, they saw it, they knew about it, and they did not prosecute him. So in other words, Shechem committed a capital crime, kidnapping. It's of course problematic that like rape in and of itself isn't considered a capital crime. Put that aside for a second, but he kidnapped somebody. We found out at the end of the story, she's been in the house the whole time. The tradition reads it that way. Kidnapped her, that's a capital crime, and nobody held him accountable for it. So the question is that I think what I started to think about and I've continued to be haunted by and I should have been thinking about it my whole life. I had a rather late awakening, but in the aftermath of Trayvon Martin and Mike Brown and Sandra Bland and all of these cases that we're, we've been bombarded with in Philander Castile, are all of us in the United States liable for the death penalty in core Jewish law? Again, I want to be cautious here and specific. The Rambam doesn't say that Shimon and Levi were justified to take the law into their own hands. He just says that all the people of the entire town were liable for the death penalty because they didn't prosecute a capital criminal. So we live in bodies politic where we have seen explicit capital crimes committed by people in power and we 
in a system we proudly call representative democracy. So it's really we have not prosecuted the criminals, even though we've seen the actions happen. Laquan McDonald is very unusual because there was the beginning of an uprising. The city responded to a political crisis and indicted uh, Officer Van Dyke, and he was convicted and given a very light sentence. Um, though the seven officers who signed onto the fraudulent statement were acquitted. But be that as it may, but all these other cases where nobody's been held accountable, do we live in a society that Torah law looks at as the equivalent of a society of incest committers or people tearing animals from limbs from live animals? Because we don't have a justice system. Now, the Ron, if you look, another commentary a couple hundred years later, he rejects the Rambam. I don't want to present the idea that the Rambam has the last word here, is the only opinion. The Ron quotes the Rambam. He says, for, all, for this reason, all the people of Shechem are liable for the death penalty since they didn't prosecute Shechem for capital punishment. But some have challenged the Rambam. Obviously, any descendant of Noah who corrupted judgment and violated do not do perversion and judgment would, of course, have to be executed. He's like, Rambam, your standard for what dinim is is too strong. Obviously, anybody who actually commits fraud is guilty. But everybody in the whole city, just because they didn't take the positive step of prosecuting? But the citizens who were sitting and keeping to themselves didn't establish judges in each and every city and jurisdiction? No, they're not liable for the death penalty to actually be physically executed. That's just an additional positive commandment. Yeah, it would be better to have a functioning justice system, but you're not liable for the death penalty for not having done it. Do we all feel like people who are liable for the death penalty just because maybe we didn't do enough to hold powerful people accountable? Moreover, says the Ron, the Rambam statement is difficult to me because in Shechem's place, it's possible that there were judges. But since Shechem, son of Hamor, lorded over them, they couldn't prosecute him. Just as we've seen with several kings of Israel who did evil in the eyes of Hashem, but the Israelites did not execute them. I want us to actually take seriously, if we locate ourselves in this machloket, in this dispute between the Rambam and the Ran, our two choices are either the Rambam in which we understand that having a functioning justice system that prosecutes justice fairly and equally is a sine qua non, a basic, a basic feature of civilized life. And lack of a functioning justice system makes us a totally barbaric, uncivilized uh, society that's worthy of execution. How that gets carried out, he doesn't deal with, but we're worthy of it. Or we have the run saying you can't really expect a body politic to judge powerful people. So what I appreciate about the Ron is I think the Ron says probably what most of us think, what America tends to think. Come on. He's the captain of the Stanford football team. You don't really think he's going to, that they're going to kick him out of school and send him to prison for 35 years? A nice kid who has a future in front of him? Come on. Justice system isn't for people like that. We can't really do that. A, a, a police sergeant 
That's impossible. We can't do that. Judge Kavanaugh, we can't do that. Come on. Somebody in power, how would the court system possibly deal with that? But then we've got to be like the Ron and actually say that and say, we do not expect the justice system to have power over the powerful. We expect to be lorded over them. And I think this part of this having it both ways in American society is where we're a little bit stuck on how to deal with violence. And I think what they're really talking about here, with the, where the Rambam is so haunting, is saying while he is simultaneously not validating Shimon and Levi, and you get the sense that like Levi is a zealot and Shimon is a sociopath based on other stories of violence that they appear in in the Torah. And yet, it's not like the liberals were doing anything to rescue Dina. Yaakov was holding his tongue. Mm -hmm. he, was very, he was very against riots, very against this violence. It's going to make things worse. You act violently, it's just going to be a circle of violence. You've made us odious in the land of, it's going to ruin everything for us. How can you do such a thing? He never said anything. He never he said heard. anything when Dina was kidnapped, though. And so the extent to which we're troubled by Shimon and Levi has to be in the context of the extent to which we address the Yaakov problem. Where are the moderates in this case? They're not prosecuting, and they're not going on a rescue mission. And so you're left with, yeah, you know what, the people who are going to get something done, they're not the people you would ideally choose. It's the sociopaths and the zealots who are going to do it, and you're going to have some big problems later on. You know what a better solution would be? How about have a functioning justice system with an accountable police force or a family that like really comes up with a rescue mission and is willing to take some risks and not just to sacrifice and throw away the more vulnerable bodies and say, like, well, Dino will just be a kidnapped sex slave, per perhaps, in her captor's house. So it brings me, I started thinking about all this um, in 2015, um, when the uprising happened in Baltimore after uh, the murder of Freddie Gray by the Baltimore police, or what, we, what seems circumstantially to have been the murder of Freddie Gray, the, put it this way, they weren't trying that hard. The police weren't trying that hard to come up with a compelling uh, explanation for how he, how he died by saying that his spine was fractured in numerous places by him trying to get out of his handcuffs in the backseat of a car. Doesn't really, they didn't feel they needed to try that hard. They didn't, didn't seem like they were actually worried about facing consequences. So Tanahasi Coates, then the senior editor of The Atlantic, writes the following. So it's a longer piece. I encourage you to read it. The link is there. But the excerpt that's here. Now tonight I turn on the news and I see during the Baltimore uprising, and I see politicians calling for young people in Baltimore to remain peaceful and nonviolent. The mayor went on TV and said, we just, let's calm, nonviolence. White, white mayor started quoting Dr. King and nonviolence. But he goes on, but there was no official appeal for calm when Freddie Gray was being arrested. Funny how when he was being killed, 
when he was being tortured and killed, the mayor didn't go on TV or go on the CB radios of the police officers and say, well, come on, let's, let's, Dr. King taught us about nonviolence. Nonviolence is a virtue. So what is meant by nonviolence? When Yaakov says to Shimon and Levi, you've done a terrible thing by employing violence, is he opposed to violence or is he just not that concerned about Dina and he's more concerned about his own reputation and in the future. When nonviolence is preached as an attempt to evade the repercussions of political brutality, it betrays itself. When nonviolence begins halfway through the war with the aggressor calling time out, it exposes itself as a ruse. When nonviolence is preached by the representatives of the state, while the state doles out heaps of violence to its citizens, it reveals itself to be a con. And none of this can mean that rioting or violence is correct or wise any more than a forest fire can be correct or wise. The question isn't, did Shimon and Levi do something good or bad? Shimon and Levi did something inevitable. If you have extreme dryness and gusts of wind and a lot of woods in an area, you're going to have a forest fire at a certain point. That doesn't make it good or bad. But you haven't made conditions. You can't get just upset about the forest fire if you're not doing anything before that about fire safety or about irrigation or keeping an area wet or preventing uh, climate change on a serious political level. Wisdom is not the point tonight. Disrespect is. In this case, disrespect for the hollow law and failed order that so regularly disrespects the community. Similarly, a year later, in a piece called The Near Certainty of Anti-Police Violence, Coates responded to that case, you might recall, when a man named Mike Xavier Johnson, uh, a Navy veteran who cracked. He cracked. And... Um, was sort of a zealous sociopath, maybe a Shimon and Levy combo. Um, and he got up on a rooftop as a sniper and he uh, assassinated five police officers in Dallas. And it was a whole big thing. So Coates writes, last week, 25-year-old Micah Xavier Johnson murdered five police officers in Dallas. This abhorrent act of political extremism cannot be divorced from American history, recent or old. In black communities, the police departments have only enjoyed a kind of quasi-legitimacy. That is because wanton discrimination is definitional to the black experience, and very often it is law enforcement which implements that discrimination with violence. A community consistently subjected to violent discrimination under the law will lose respect for it and act beyond it. When such actions stretch to mass murder, it is horrific, but it is also predictable. If you skip, a, if you skip a, a paragraph, what does it mean, for instance, that black children are ritually told that any stray movement in the face of the police might result in their own legal killing? What happens to us when we take for granted abuse of power as a normal thing we have to adjust to? As Yaakov and his family had to just adjust to, like, well, there are no cops we can call here. When Eric Holder spoke about getting the talk from his father and then giving it to his own son, many of us, black people, nodded our heads. But many more of us were terrified when the nation's top cop, the attorney general, has to warn his children to be, care to be skeptical of his own troops. How legitimate can the police actually be? If you skip down to the second to last paragraph, in the black community, it's the force they deploy, deploy and not any higher American ideal that gives police their power. 
This is obviously dangerous for those who are policed. Less appreciated is the danger illegitimacy ultimately poses to those who must do the policing. For if the law represents nothing but the greatest force, then it really is indistinguishable from any other street gang. And if the law is nothing but a gang, then it is certain that someone will resort to the kind of justice typically meted out to all other powers in the street. There is no shortcut out. Sanctimonious cries of nonviolence will not help. Retraining can only do so much. Until we move to the broader question of policy, we can expect to see Walter Scott's and Freddie Gray's with some regularity. And the extent to which we are tolerant of the possibility of more Walter Scott's and Freddie Gray's is the extent to which we are tolerant of the possibility of more Micah Xavier Johnson's. You cannot have one without the other. You cannot be more upset with Shimon and Levi than you are with Shechem. And in a world where the law of the land is Shechem, a entitled, privileged, rich boy governor's son, seeing a young woman and grabbing her and taking her and then kidnapping her, and the father then doesn't lay down the law on his son, but goes and does violence with with crossed T's and dotted I's and polite language to the family while he's holding a captive in his house and says, oh, there's a love story here. Let's, let's make a shidduch with the captive in my house and my son. That, too, is violence. It's just violence wearing a badge and a uniform that doesn't need to have riots. Um, the last thing I want to say about this is that there's there's a sequel to the story, which you have on pages four and five. We're not going to read it together, obviously, for time. But I encourage you to read it on your own. It's the 25th chapter of Bemidbar, and it is another moment of mass breakdown in Israelite society. And there is where a, a, a local majority, in this case the Midianites and Moabites, engage in a pagan orgy and lure Israelites into. And the Israelites participate willingly and are punished for it. And there's a, it's a free-for-all. There's like a terrible, terrible crisis going on. And God commands Moshe to take all the chiefs of the people and hang them before Hashem. God sees this as a political crisis. That if all the people have gotten so out of control... And they're like worshiping pagan, participating in a pagan orgy, then this is a leadership crisis. And you've got to like get, take the heads of all the leadership. That'll stop the crisis. Moshe does something different. He says to the judges, go and kill all the individuals who are committing the crime. And they don't do it. And as this happens, the crisis escalates. One man who is a Shimonite a chieftain of the tribe of Shimon, remember Shimon, Zimri, goes and he takes a Midianite princess and right in front of everybody has sex with her, right in front of everybody, in front of all the leadership. This is also a kind of uh, eroticized violence. In front, violence to the woman, violence to the people, to the onlookers, violence to the legal establishment. And while this is happening, a Levite then Pinchas goes in, nobody else is doing anything, and stabs them in their you-know-where in the act. It is the most like NC-17 moment in the Torah, perhaps. While they're in the act of coitus, he stabs, he came after the Israelite man into the chamber, stabbed both of them, the Israelite man and the woman, through her belly. 
and the plague was halted. It works. And what's interesting for our purposes about this is that the rabbis understand this not as a problem of sex, but as a problem of an inactive justice system. In a midrash in the Sifrei, Pinchas, Pinchas's thought process was, is there no one here who's prepared to kill at the risk of being killed? Is there nobody courageous willing to do a risk when there is massive violence happening? Where are these famous lions like Yehuda and Don, who are two tribes who are both associated with the judiciary and who are called lions? Pinchas started to shout out. When he saw that everyone was silent, he stood up from within his court, grabbed his spear, put it in his cloak, leaned on his cane, and went in and did the deed. And I want to suggest that what the rabbis are intuiting from this is that any time there's a mass societal breakdown and there's a crisis, it is a crisis of the judiciary on some level. That a functioning society, what the Gemara and Sanhedrin is telling us, what the Rambam interprets, is that central to being civilized is having a functioning justice system. If you don't have a functioning justice system, you're accepting and inviting a world of violence. And if you do that, you are all yourselves liable for the death penalty. And you can only expect the kind of measure-for-measure measure response that we see from the likes of Shimon Levy or Micah Xavier Johnson. When we talk about violence and nonviolence, we're going to need some more mature language. We're going to need some language that recognizes the violence that doesn't need to show up as, as recognizable violence because it has a badge and it has a uniform and it has state power behind it. How to recognize violence that happens behind closed doors and equate violence that happens outside of closed doors with it. To recognize that if we're upset about the potential of violence responses to state violence, then we'd better act with real alacrity and making sure that we have a functioning justice system and act as disturbed as we are about its absences as we would be from the violence that could come in response. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetemidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community, indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.